He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 4, 2023, Troubadour Dave Gunders in studio from the outset. How are you, Craig? I am well. It's Friday afternoon. What could go wrong? This is good. I'm happy it's Friday afternoon. Have you heard about the Chinese balloon over America? I heard about this balloon, yes. Did you know about my show, Michael Johnston? The former state senator, friend of Obama, he's running for Denver mayor. He's a smart guy. Do you know where he went to college? I have no idea. Yale. Oh, okay. Graduate degree, Harvard. Impressive. Pretty good. Yeah. But does he know how to be mayor? He grew up in Bale, of all places. And uh, his place called the Christiana. They had uh, a business. They ran their own you know, bed and breakfast sort of place. His dad ended up being bail mayor. Wait oh. till you hear this interview. It's outstanding. I'm having all the major mayoral candidates on. I'm pretty proud of that. I think it's great. I've seen some Kelly uh, Broff um, uh, signs since since your, your interview. Uh, yes. It's been, what, two weeks yes. since she was on. Yes, I've noticed her, the, them popping up. And uh, she was quite an impressive person. Absolutely. Yes. And today, the holly is coming out. I've already interviewed Terrence Roberts, and wait till you hear me talk to Michael Johnston about that book, because he's part of it, and it's not the most flattering portrayal. Wait till you hear his answers. That sounds exciting. I think so, but uh, not as exciting as this uh, Chinese spy balloon. What's going on there? You're the smartest guy in the world with a song for every occasion. Black (laughs) balloons. How perfect is that? Well, my song, yes, my song is about black balloons, but I have, I I don't, I don't, it's, it's bizarre. This white uh, so-called research balloon that, that our intelligence community has dismissed. Okay. It's a spy balloon. Use your intelligence. Huh? What do you mean they've dismissed it? They're not dismissing it. No, our people, our people are dismissing the the China China's um, uh, excuse that this right. is a stray yes. research balloon. Right. Yeah. So now what? Troubadour. I, I don't know. Where is it now? I mean, does this well, thing have any? Puzzle it out. It was <laughs> over Montana. Now it's uh, over Missouri. They say on a leisurely course across America. Isn't that nice? It's not nice. You know what Leon Panetta just said? You know Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, former CIA top guy, chief of staff to Bill Clinton as well. You know what he just said on CNN late Friday afternoon? No. Well, he was channeling me, which is we can't just let this waltz through. Well, that may be true, but I mean, what what is it looking? We have What's to take it, control of it. What is it looking? We need at? to take it and find out what it's been doing here. Well, that it's, may a, be true. it's invaded our sovereignty. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, wait. Uh, but one thing, question I have now: most balloons are just uh, they just go where the wind blows, right? No, I mean, there's they've no... determined that China can guide this. Okay, so they sent it over here. 
high in the atmosphere. And what's going on? It's got 60, little- 60,000 people, why? What are they doing? 60,000 feet, okay. So, okay, that's do you think kind they of in thought space. they would get away with it? I mean, no, you wouldn't think so. It's the size of three school buses. Uh, airliners are seeing it and it's, calling it in. And you'd think that, you know, satellites could spy on anything that a balloon could. Right, but there are certain things that a balloon could do that uh, a spy satellite could not, like detonate an explosive at a certain level of space, yeah. causing the grid to go down. I, I have no idea. It's, I'm sure we'll find yeah, out. But an so, electric magnetic attack. So, so let, let's just puzzle it out like detectives. You know, I was in law enforcement, and this is what I do. I can't conceive that they thought they would get away with it, right? I mean, right. it's too big. Right. There's no stealth really involved. Doesn't seem like it. So it's a provocation. Right, or or maybe it's just a gift. How, no. Well, we, we will have to take control of it. We need to take it down. People are saying, shoot it down. Bullshit. I mean, put a net over it. Take it to the ground or call China and say... You're going to land it in a weed field in Tennessee tomorrow at 9 a.m. or else because you've invaded our space and we don't like it. I mean, it's a trial balloon. Do you see what I'm saying? They want to see how we will respond. Probably. And, and we have to respond in some way. That you're that that you're uh, you're that you're bringing up. Yes. Yeah, we can't just let it float through Montana, even if all it's doing is looking at our cows. I was thinking about our properties here, which are not huge. But let's take your mountain property. Let's say somebody put a drone over your property at about a hundred feet, right over. What do you call that? The mansion, the ranch house, cabin. What would you do? If it was a hundred feet up there, yeah. If I had a way of shooting it out of the sky, I would definitely do it. After how long? Just because they're annoying. Five minutes, annoying five hours, things. five days. Oh, I don't know, probably more like in the minutes. <laughs> See, and what what more? You know what what right. better what better entertainment for a Friday afternoon than taking down a drone? No, I agree with you. I think what we need to do is tell them to land the thing. I'm worried about coordination between this and Putin, and they want to invade Taiwan. America's on the ropes. And I also see them manipulating us in every which way, this TikTok. Do you have TikTok? My boy Sam does, and he says, Dad, it's bad. So my girls got into TikTok back when it was more, they would, you know, show me these, these, you know, teenage girls who'd come up with a, their own dance or something. Right. And which had gone viral. I mean, some of these, some of these, some of these kids are amazing in terms of what they present to the world in 15 seconds. But, but I don't, I don't watch TikTok. When my girls are home, they might show me something. I don't either. But apparently it gets in your head. I've done Twitter, although I went without during January. I'm going to try to keep it going in February. When I say no Twitter, I still post about my show, but I'm not posting politically because it gets me a little too aggravated. TikTok apparently gets into you, and Sam says he's exposed to a lot of anti-Semitic shit on TikTok. Well, if you're in social media, you're going to be exposed to everything. Right, but right? if you're all kinds of if hate, you are an enemy of America, like. Vladimir Putin, you're looking to exploit those divisions and you want to throw fuel on the racism fire and you can do it with algorithms 
pushing stuff that drives Americans further apart. Disinformation. Disunifying information. And now that we have AI? Yes. Yes. They can do that at will and in seconds, right? Correct. Yeah. So that's that's a frightening thing. And they have no temerity about doing it. No. And it's going to be hard for most people to distinguish between what's true and what's fabrication. Yes. So we've it's going to only get problems. worse. That's all, it's only going to get worse now that now that AI is coming along. Jeez, yeah, see, and yeah, I'm yeah. looking for you for optimism, and you give me black balloons this week. <laughs> what? Well, no. what inspired black balloons? Black balloons is that's my that's my uh, my image of of a um, of. It's the end of a relationship, but it's kind of like, okay, congratulations, you blew it. Black balloons are there to, uh, to, to, to point out, a, um, in an ironic sense, the end of a relationship, um, you know, vis-a-vis what is normally a celebration, right? Balloons. Right. Yeah. So black balloons is, is something, something quite different. But you are kind of a cad in this song. Have you thought about that? Oh, yeah. You're a flim-flam man. Yeah. You're trying to talk your way back into this woman who was wise no, to get rid of you. I don't know about Flynn Fl- I mean, I think that the character, and don't say it's me, this is a song. Um, I think the character, no, no, he's remorseful. He's remorseful. If you would believe, he wants, he's asking for her forgiveness. No, he's asking for her forgiveness. No, in a, in, in a sincere way. Yeah. I think the music kind of conveys that you're a carnival character here when you say that was then this is now well that was then i mean that's that's what every flim flam man says okay maybe i wasn't right about building the wall but i will build the wall and mexico will pay for it no no he's no just if you just listen to the lyrics he's saying he's saying if you would believe again he wants her he wants her back he wants and he wants her trust he's gonna do what it takes craig he made a mistake it's a rocking dance song it's got all the Dave Gunders elements with the paper moon floating across the sky, right? Right. And are you the guy playing the big bad guitar leg here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, playing the guitars. And it's all kind of a plaintive wail. You know what else works about the Chinese spy balloon? What lyric from your song? I want to take them back. You mean, you mean yeah, you go, right. I want to take, take them back. Right, take I want to take them yeah. back. Yeah. That was then, this is now, because we might be on a different footing with China. You know, Secretary of State Blinken canceled his trip to China. Right. That's not like uh, canceling a trip to New York to go to a Broadway show. It's a big deal. I think it is a big deal. Is there any possibility that it is just a, um, uh, an errant research balloon so. that just drifted away? I don't think so. There's well, a flashpoint. We have to have these answers, Craig. But the answer is what Leon Panetta said. We're agreed. It needs to be Deter- by the time we air, 9 o'clock Saturday morning, Colorado right. time. We have to take control of this bird. Right. We have to see what's going on. And we, I shoot it down if we have to, but bring it down so we get the technology, right? It's our technology, I'm sure. It's our <laughs> technology. Funny. That's funny. Yeah, see yeah. what they install. Yeah, see what they install. And when we talk about shoot it down, there's a line in your song, Black Balloons, right? Yeah. I shot you down. Right. You were flying and I shot you down. Yeah. 
Yeah. How do you but do anyway, it? Week no, after week. I think shooting them down, shooting the balloon down is not not the way to go. That's a that's that's later on, you know, that's down what the do road. What do you mean? Well, we you need to do what you, you said. You within we, minutes, we have, so it's hovering over your house. We have to communicate with China. Yeah, but my house and a, and a drone is not is not our relationship with China. We have to we have to be very prudent here. We communicate with the Chinese and tell them to land their damn balloon. That's and if it. they don't, then you shoot it down. Then you shoot it down. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being part of this great intro. This is the way the show will go. We're going to hear after short commercial break, Black Balloons by our troubadour Dave Gunders, then an epic interview with Denver mayoral hopeful Michael Johnston. It's a great one. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Thanks, Craig. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead, who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, Michael. Hey, Craig, how are you? 
Not bad for a working man. What about you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Not bad for an unemployed man, I guess, is my answer. I was never more busy than when I was unemployed and running for Denver DA. What exactly. about you? you know, Are you busy? You know, I am super busy and uh, both of those things. Never been so busy and so unemployed at the same time. Well, thank you for taking the time. I hope you have enough time to compete on my podcast because... Every one of the major candidates is getting an episode, and this, my friend, is yours. I'm really excited about it. I know a little bit about you, but you have a fascinating bio. It's not like you grew up in Denver. Tell everybody about your upbringing. Uh, you bet. I, um, uh, first of all, thanks for doing this and for having me. Um, yeah, I grew up on the Western Slope in, in Eagle County. My um parents uh, had a bed and breakfast that they started in the 70s. And so I grew up living in that bed and breakfast, which meant I spent a lot of my childhood cleaning toilets and folding laundry and making breakfast, which I think would, my wife would say are the best skills I brought into the marriage. Uh, I think those are uh, those are things that I spent a lot of my childhood doing. And it's been great growing up in a family business. Um, and we still have it now. And so still involved in that. And now give the give a shout out. What's the name of the place? Oh, yeah, it's called the Christiania. Uh, and so uh, it's it's still there. Um, but yeah, I think for all the folks that know how hard it is to run a family business, we've certainly lived that our, our whole lives. But I then eventually followed into my mom's footsteps, which is, you know, I'm a fourth generation school teacher. My mom was a school teacher. Grandma was a school teacher. My grandfather was a school principal. Um, I always say that turned out work good for a while until my grandfather ran away with the math teacher, and then that didn't end up so well. So that's, oh, no. that was a yeah, that was a little that, fun that family did drama. Not add up. Anyway. Uh, yeah, my grandma used to say, "Baby, you can be anything you want to be, just not a math teacher." <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, so I started my career as a teacher uh, in, in Mississippi, um, teaching in one of the poorest counties in America, and loved it, uh, but wanted to be able to change the direction of kids' lives more than than just being in uh, the class I saw each day. And so I decided to become a school principal. And that was what brought me back home to Colorado. And I spent most of my 20s as the principal of uh, three different high schools around the city, one in a juvenile prison in South Denver at the Foot Center, one that served all kids that lived in state custody in a residential treatment centers, and then uh, the school, the district high school up in Thornton called Mesa, which was the one that I helped turn around from a school that had a 50% dropout rate into what became the first public high school in Colorado history with 100% of our seniors to graduate and 100% of them to get admitted to four-year colleges. And so that was that was how I spent my 20s. And that was actually what got me into politics the first time, which is I was the principal of that high school. And we got all of our kids admitted to college. We found out a lot of them couldn't go because they were undocumented at that point. And so I initially ran for the state Senate to try to change that law to allow undocumented kids to be able to go to college at uh, in-state tuition rates, just like the rest of their classmates. And so that was how I went from being a school principal to being a state senator. Right. And there was a guy named Barack Obama who took notice of Michael Johnston. <laughs> he came to your Mapleton school. I think that's when most of us first learned about you and your success in Mapleton. And then you became a state senator. You were the whiz kid, no doubt about it. But let's go back to when you were a kid. Because you're giving credit to your mama, but what about your dad? Didn't he get into politics in a way? <laughs> That's funny. My dad, yeah, my dad was um, my dad was an entrepreneur. He did all sorts of things. He had our bed and breakfast. He had a little art gallery for a while. He was a bartender. Uh, so he did a little bit of everything. But yes, one of those tours of duty was he served as a, as the mayor of our town for a couple of years. Um, and 
I remember the night he uh, he lost re-election on a controversial bid to try to bring a convention center uh, to the town. He thought maybe that there should be a little more commerce in town, and that was a hotly contested issue. So my dad did a little tour of in politics, but mostly was a small business owner and an entrepreneur. Right, and now you are running for mayor of Denver. I think that's fascinating. Being a Denver <laughs> native, um, it it it's just interesting to me. And whereas you were once the whiz kid, now I don't know if you have gray in your hair. You used to come to the studio to do the interviews with me, but you were a great state senator. Education's been your thing. But then you thought about being governor, as I recall, in 2018. You toyed with a, a Senate bid, and now you want to be mayor of Denver. Why do you want to be mayor of Denver? Uh, you know, I've spent the last uh, four years out of politics and have been you know, running a foundation here in Denver, which serves uh, trying to provide services to folks who don't need it most, trying to help kids and families get access to opportunity. And as a CEO, I've had the chance to develop and build a lot of solutions to some of the toughest problems the city is facing. And I think for me, the biggest obstacle, the biggest first obstacle the city faces right now is is a belief that we can solve the problems we're facing. I think too many people have given into the notion that we're just kind of stuck with the city where, as you know, you know, crime is going through the roof and we have the worst auto theft of any city in the country or where we have 1,400 people who are homeless on the streets on any given night or where we you know, have 80% of teachers and nurses who can't afford to live in the city that they serve anymore. And I think that is not what has to be. Um, we know these problems are solvable. I got to build solutions to many of them as the CEO of this foundation. And I think I have a real belief that Denver can be America's best city. There's no reason we can't. Uh, it just requires the vision and the tenacity to solve these things. And I love the city and looked at it and saw ourselves at a crucial crossroads here. where We can either figure out how to solve these problems and put our city back on track to being America's best city. Or if we don't, we end up in a place like a San Francisco or a Seattle or a Portland where you know, people don't want to visit downtown. They don't want to live in that city. They don't want to raise kids in that city. And that is not what I want to see happen to the city I love. Uh, and so that is, that's why I jumped in. And that's why I'm really excited about what we can do uh, in Denver together over the next decade. And you have a plan to address homelessness. I read your website. Um, give a shout out to it. But you uh, reference micro communities as a solution. Isn't that what was attempted in Portland? And did it work out there? No, I think very different from what they've done in Portland. Um, I think that what well, you know, when you start, first of all, with how do you approach the problem of homelessness? Um, the problem of homelessness in the city is connected to a lot of the same problems of affordable housing and housing stock in general in the city, which has been very hard to get actually the housing built in the city. And so right now, the reason why we can't solve the problem is we don't have any permanent supportive housing to move people to. And so what you're doing is just moving them from one block to the next because there's no place else to go. So the first step is to build these uh, 1,400 units of what I would call tiny homes or, or uh, in, in these micro communities. You have 40 to 60 units on a given half acre site and spread them out around the city. Uh, they take a very small footprints, but in those places you have full wraparound mental health support, addiction treatment, workforce training, long-term housing coaching, you have security and stability. Mostly you have folks in a in a house with a roof and a door and a lock and a cot and a and a couch and a chair and you know your own public I'm sorry, your own private space that is mm -hmm. safe. And we know this works. Uh, it works tremendously well. We did a pilot of it here in Denver and a year after we, we did it, 86% of the people were still housed. It's worked in Austin, it's worked in Houston. Uh, you see dramatic drop in 
not only homelessness, but an addiction and mental health crises. And so uh, that's what I would do. Um, and the other important part of it is you also allow uh, and encourage people to move by communities. So right now, when you go to one of these homeless encampments and you try to convince one person to leave and they don't want to, it's because that is the only community they have left is the folks they're living on the street right. with. And so the, the idea of the micro communities is you open a site that has 40 to 60 units there and you move three or four blocks of encampments all at the same time. So all the folks in those encampments are now moving as a community to a place that's safe, that's stable, that's supervised, uh, and that provides the services to get them back on their feet. And I think that's what we know people who are unhoused want. We know it's what the rest of the citizens of Denver want. And it's something we can deliver with the right leader, with the right vision. Right, Ben. How much will it cost? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Craig, because I think I'm the only one who's put a budget out on every single thing I proposed and showed how it's paid for and where the money comes from and doesn't require any new taxes. All the things I proposed are within Denver's current budget. Other two things, to build the units, it costs about uh, twenty to $25,000 apiece, and you can do that with about $40 million of one-time federal stimulus funds that are still available for housing. I would use that. And then the ongoing maintenance of the, of the projects are about a million dollars per micro-community, and that will come from uh, Proposition 123, which I led last year and passed, which provides ongoing permanent funding for uh, affordable housing and homelessness. Um, and so that, together with Denver's existing budget, solves the cost for these um, and make sure you have high-quality services that are available in an ongoing way. Right, but if you uh, make it that nice, won't you just attract more people to come to Denver? Hey, there's a great place to come. If you don't have a job, you don't have a home, they've got these tiny houses, micro-communities, it's safe, it's the place to be. Yeah, I, I don't think we've seen that. What we've seen actually is oftentimes the people that are drawn to cultures around uh, homelessness are not drawn are drawn to much more of the dysfunctional cultures which are open air drug markets or um you know places where there's human trafficking and all sorts of criminal activity happening that you don't want to be a part of i think when people see you know the, the community here is people that are hard working finding their way up and out getting housed getting stable getting trained uh you know we're happy to have people in the community who want to be able to do that and this is going to make it easier for them to do that but i think when you look at the at the data from around the country, it doesn't support that you have real migration of people to homeless centers. I mean, even in San Francisco, which has some of the highest homeless population, the recent research shows about 94% of those people are all from the immediate region around San Francisco. They were made homeless by the drop in social services, the changes in drug laws, and the increases in housing. Uh, it's, there's not a lot of homeless folks in uh, West Virginia buying an airplane ticket to fly to Denver and be homeless out here. It's really much more about people in that region that are facing challenges and not being served. I know Michael a little bit. I've watched his meteoric rise, and he really was a star in the legislature. His wife, Courtney, is a prosecutor in Denver, and I've had the pleasure of meeting her. You guys have a family. I do want to draw on your experience as an educator and at the Marvin Foote Center, because to me, the key to Denver and its future are young people. Based on your own children, your experience, what's going on with kids these days? Are they going to be okay? And does the uh, mayoral election in Denver matter to them? Oh, I think it matters profoundly to them. Uh, and I think they want to be okay, but I think they are facing a crisis that no other generation of children in this country has ever faced. You know, No other... Our parents and grandparents who lived through world wars uh, and depressions never saw entire economies or schools shut down for years at a time. And so they are facing dual crises, these kids. One is a crisis of 
uh, academic learning loss that happened from the pandemic. And the other is a real mental health crisis that came from part of the isolation of the pandemic. And so those are two incredibly important things that the next mayor has to attend to. I think the two things we want to do on that front are one is we want to help every kid find their passion and particularly the kids that are the farthest from opportunity. We know a lot of low income kids who don't have access to go to uh, after school arts program or robotics or summer camp at the Denver Science Museum or art camp or to get tutoring in a subject they're struggling in. And we want to provide resources to be able to get those kids access to the things that help them find their spark, their passion. And so we've launched a pilot program with Denver that I did as the foundation that we would scale here in the city of Denver to help all low income kids get access to those kind of positive experiences that get you on the right path. And then, as you know, Craig, we got to do a lot more prevention and intervention early on when kids start to struggle. When we know a kid's 14 years old and caught with a gun or is getting getting in trouble with the law at age 15 or 16, you want to immediately get those kids into diversion, into programs that are going to do, whether it's multi-systemic therapy that's bringing people into their home to work with them and their families together, whether it's diversionary programs to get them out of gang activity or out of negative behaviors into more positive environments uh, with coaching and mentoring. I think those are the things we want to do. And the second thing is, how do we support kids uh, in their mental health crisis, which we know is at an all-time high right now? Children's Hospital is called an epidemic. Um, And that's about the city being able to provide better wraparound services with the school district to identify kids better who are at risk of mental health needs and then connect them to services and make sure those services can connect to their family as well. So when they get a therapist or get treatment or group uh, uh, or group or group placements, those are things that can continue throughout the summer and throughout the school year and not uh, expire after one or two sessions. So there's a real role for the next mayor to play in building a much tighter partnership between the city and the school district, particularly when it comes to out of school, after school and summer programming and mental health support. How old are your kids? Uh, my kids are 10 and 14, and they are a uh, mile a minute. And I think I know exactly what parents are facing right now, which is, you know, there are, you know, even with two parents who are doing our best, there's still kids struggle and have needs and they need additional support, whether it is academic support or, you know, sports to get them excited or whether it's mental health interventions. And I know every kid has struggled through the pandemic. It wasn't certainly easy on our kids. Uh, I think we as a city have to really rally to try to make sure all of our kids are taken care of. Are your kids in Denver public schools? My kids are spread out. Some of them are. Uh, some of them are in. Um, uh, all of them have been in Denver public schools, and some of them are now. And some are in uh, different placements. Well, you know, all your kids are different. I've discovered, and they have different needs at different right. times of their lives. Um, uh, but they're they're all doing their best and making their way. And uh, and we're doing our best as parents. But we know the city's got to uh, can do a lot of things to be better partners uh, to make sure the parents have the services they need, especially those who are struggling with trying to make ends meet with three jobs and not enough income to live in a city that's getting more and more expensive. Right. And I don't mean to get personal. And of course, you don't have to answer any questions. I just am disappointed with Denver Public Schools because I went there. I went to Ellis, Fallas, Hill, and GW. And yet when my kids were ready to go to school, DPS was not performing. And to me, it's gone further downhill is that something that you would do, uh, you would address as Denver mayor? Obviously, they have their own school board, but are there things you could do as Denver mayor to um, help Denver public schools? And do you agree with my assessment that, that uh, their performance has been disappointing, especially recently? Yeah, I think it's certainly uh, struggling. You know, there was a time, you know, 10 years ago when Denver was one of the model districts in the country. It had increasing enrollment. It had increasing 
performance. We were closing the achievement gaps. Um, and a lot of people look to us as a model. I think right now, uh, I think most people see the drama playing out on our school board and, and uh, look at us as um, probably the opposite of an exemplar in this moment. I think that's a disservice to the teachers and the principals and the kids that are working so hard. But I think that's we have good people that want to get better results. I think we need a more unified, focused uh, school board that's focused on really what the results are for kids. Um, and I think the Denver mayor does have a role to be a close partner with the superintendent, helping him or her get what they need to be successful, building the kind of partnerships the city can support and using the bully pulpit of the mayor to call out when things aren't working um, or, or or to help be a part of finding solutions that can be. And so I think this is, uh, we need to get the, the district back on track. I think the mayor can be a partner trying to do that. Look, even in a democratic city, and you're a proud Democrat, um, there's dysfunction. Take that school board, for example, and when you mix Democrats with Republicans, uh, it's not like it used to be. Modern politics is really in a state of turmoil, and I think kids see it, and I know you think about it. What's going on, Michael Johnston? I mean, what's one of the things I love about this job is it's it's a nonpartisan job. You know, you represent every single person in the city and you don't you know, play for uh, one team. You play for the whole city. Um, and that means you're trying always to bring together independents and Democrats and Republicans, new arrivals to Denver and third generation uh, family members. And you speak for all of them and you have to serve all of them. And one of the things I loved about the legislature when I was there is the ability to really build bridges to get, you know, uh, you know, I had, uh, hundreds of bills that I passed and you know, more than 90% of them had Republican co-sponsors on them because you got to find a way to work with people and find common ground. And there are a lot of areas of common ground here. Everyone in Denver wants to see us solve the homelessness problem. Everyone in Denver wants to see us solve the crime problem. Everyone in Denver wants to see us make the city more affordable. That's not a partisan answer. Uh, that's just a shared Denver answer. And so I, I think that uh, that's what makes me excited about this role is everybody's, uh, I think, shoulder to shoulder trying to get to the same outcome as opposed to trying to spend more time making each other look bad than solving the problem. I think this is a real chance to call people to one shared mission, uh, which is how do we make Denver America's best city and what role do we all play in getting us there? Well, you can't uh, really control the schools, not to the fullest extent, but when it comes to the criminal justice system, you do get to appoint the manager of safety, what do they call it, director of public safety now, and the chief of police. Of course, yep. there's an independently elected Denver DA, but what about the Denver police? Are they doing okay? Is there room for improvement? What's your assessment? Yeah, I think there's always room for improvement. There's certainly work to do to rebuild relationships between the police and communities, particularly communities of color that have not always felt like they've been uh, respected or seen or supported in their own neighborhoods. It feels sometimes more like they're being policed and less like they're being protected. I think everyone in Denver wants to feel protected. Not everyone wants to feel policed. Um, so I think there is work to do to make sure we better train and better support and better monitor and hold accountable the police. But I also think there's work to do to make sure we actually give them the support they need to be successful. And right now that means we know we need more officers on the street to keep this city safe. I mean, you know, you, you know all this data, Craig, but you're looking about 50% increase in homicides, 100% increase in property crimes, worst city in the country for auto theft. I mean, this is, you know, every night I do town halls around the city and every night I'll hear five stories of someone who's gotten their car stolen or has gotten their catalytic converter stolen or has gotten their bike stolen from their garage. And, um, and they're really worried about house break-ins and the rest. And so we need to put more officers on the street. That includes officers walking beats in communities, talking to people, building relationships, 
showing up in businesses, giving them their business card, knowing that there's someone they can call if there's a problem. But we have far too many moments where people are getting assaulted. And I heard a story the other day from a business person who had a staff member get assaulted, bleeding from the head, called the police. And I said they didn't have the capacity to respond. A lot of times on a Saturday night, you call 911 and there's a 20 to 40 person wait list on 911. That's not acceptable in a city like this. And so we got to put more officers on the street. That includes more you know, mental health uh, staff members who can co-respond for areas where you have mental health crises. It includes things like creating an auto theft unit to be able to keep the uh, city's uh, vehicles safe. Um, and it includes being able to help secure things like our public transit, light rails and buses that right now people don't feel safe on either. So we have work to do to make sure our police can do the job we're asking them to do and then to make sure we hold them accountable to doing it justly. Such a complicated thing, but what happened in Memphis with those five uh, high-intensity Scorpion units? Denver has an impact unit, and there are pluses and minuses to what's happening. My gosh, people in Memphis were startled by what they saw. So was the world. How did you react to it? Because I thought about you. You worked in Mississippi. You wrote a book about your experience could what happened in Memphis happen in Denver, or do you think it's just different culture? Or what's going on? Yeah, I mean that the Tyree Nichols case absolutely broke my heart, and it was um, for me. I forced myself to watch it uh, as as terrible as it is, because you have to get angry all over again each time, and you can't let ourselves get used to the idea that these things happen. Because our plan in Denver should be, should never be possible here. Uh, we should make sure that we build a culture where that's that's never possible, both in terms of the officers that you. Were, the recruit, the way you train them, the accountability provisions, and the way that you expect. But, you know, what, what amazed me the most is that there's five officers there, and not one of them says, "What? Maybe we shouldn't do this, or let's stop, or this doesn't make any sense." Um, so I think it is about the culture you build in the police force, um, and about the expectations you set. And I think one of the things that we would expect for officers is that part of what is being a great officer is not knowing how to escalate a situation, but knowing how to de-escalate a situation, right? Craig, you mentioned, you know, when I was working in the foot center and working with kids who were convicted of crimes and many of them had committed murder or sex assault or others, you still got to be able to know how, when that kid gets escalated, how I can talk him down to sit down as opposed to putting him in a headlock and making him sit down. And so I think those are skills we want officers to develop. And that's why sometimes you want mental health professionals or others on scene but we have to look at this as an organization whose job it is to protect public safety and to keep the public safe, not to put people at risk at their own hands. And so that would, my commitment is that would be something that would never happen uh, on our watch. Is there more racism down south? I've never really spent time in the Old South. You did. Um, is it, I, I used to think Denver was different and better. Am I wrong? Am I naive? Or... I mean, you know, so I don't know if you know this, Craig, my, my wife is from Memphis. So, you know, she grew up there. Her I didn't whole life, know that. So obviously that, that was a particularly heartbreaking experience for her. And I think that's, um, I think a lot of people around the country like to believe that, you know, uh, Dr. King said he was never so terrified as he was when he went to the North, uh, mm-hmm. when he went to Chicago right. and places like Boston, because the, the racism was so extreme in those places. So I don't think anyone is exempt from the legacy of racial injustice in this country. And we got to figure out what we can do to actually uh, fix that. How do we, how do we work to make that right? And that means not just things like policing. It means things like how we're helping make sure black families are getting access to economic opportunity and to jobs and to contracts and to um, access to, to, you know, educational opportunities. One of the things I helped develop over the last couple of years is a 
fund called the Deerfield Fund, which is focused on helping uh, black families get access to home ownership. Because you know, home ownership is the best way to build wealth in this country. And we've spent 400 years denying those families the ability to build wealth. We've got to figure out how we can help support it. And so for so many families, the ability to get into a home is what allows you to pass on wealth to your kids. Um, so I think there are very proactive things we can do to help close those gaps, not just in our policing, but in our policies around everything from housing uh, to homelessness, to economic development, to workforce training. And I think that's what we got to do comprehensively to try to close that gap. Well, then let's talk about immigration, because honest to goodness, I think one of the most impactful Supreme Court decisions was Plyler v. Doe, which said that every public school system has to educate any kid in their community. And we all accept that now, but the burden that that places on Denver Public Schools, Aurora Public Schools, it's really unfair, right? And how, talk to me about immigration and how how a city can effectively deal with that without uh, some services being diminished. <laughs> I love Craig. You're the only talk show host in America who's going to raise Plyler B. Doe on a, on a, on a podcast. And so uh, I, I love that about you. Um, Thank you. So, uh, so, I mean, so here, here's my take. As you know, I ran a school district that served a lot of kids with that background who were immigrant kids um, and who came here seeking the American dream and wanted to work hard to get it. You know, my, my belief is there is a different problem right here. If you think about the problem of the most recent uh, migrant crisis that came to Denver, I can't tell you, Craig, how many calls I got from CEOs and business leaders who said, hey, I see those the migrants just got here to town. How can I hire them? Like, I need workers right now. I need to put those folks to work. Can, can I hire them? And at the same time, I know there's nothing those people would rather do than try to get to work. The big part that's broken about the system is you have a massive need for labor in this town. You have folks who want to work, and we have laws that make it impossible for us to hire the people that want to work. And so I think we want, you know, I, I think that I certainly stand by and believe in the commitment to serve uh, kids who are here. I just met a family from Libya who was here of uh, refugee status with an 11-year-old girl who was trying to get into school. I'm proud of the fact that we're a country that is going to say, yeah, if you're an 11-year-old girl who's a refugee from Libya and Denver, we're going to make sure you go to school. We don't want you. There's no benefit to our society and you sitting at home all day not getting educated. We want you educated. And more important question for us to solve is how do we make sure their parents can get to work too? Because we know they want to do that. We know that's better for our society. That's what we want to help them do. And for people who live in Denver and want to raise their family, is it right for them to wonder, well, why don't the people in Arapahoe County and Douglas County, and you brought up Adams County, they share, but Boulder County, do you know what I mean? It's It seems like yeah. the burden falls on Denver more than any place else. No, I do. I agree. I agree with that, uh, Craig. And I think what I would have done if I were mayor at this point is, you know, you think about past crises like Hurricane Katrina, Craig. I mean, you remember that, right? When Hurricane mm -hmm. Katrina happened and there were th hundreds of thousands of refugees from New Orleans and, you know, the mayor of New Orleans didn't ship them on a bus as a surprise and drop them in Denver. What they did is they worked together and coordinated and said, OK, Denver, how many beds can you take? Colorado Springs, how many beds could you take? Fort Collins, what could you take? And when you partner on this, sure, we all can have a part in the solution if you work collaboratively together. So I would have, as the mayor, said, okay, we have 2,000 folks. Let's call Anna Stout in Grand Junction, see if, she, if the mayor there can take 50 people. Let's talk to, uh, you know, uh, let's talk to the mayor up in Fort Collins. Let's talk to John Southers in Colorado Springs. Let's reach out to our regional partners and say, we know no one can solve all of it. 
but what what bit can we do? And I, I, I 100% believe if I called John Southers and said, John, what can you do? He'd say, let me get back to you. And he'd call and say, all right, we have beds for 100 people. We'll help. Um, I just think that is generally the commitment of people who want to solve problems. So I think that is a moment where we should expect that everyone collaborates and all the weight doesn't fall on one community. And the same way I understand that if you're a border community, the burden is much harder for you. So we also can play our part. Not all of them have to land in El Paso either. Um, but I think the more we work collaboratively, the easier it is to solve the problem than trying to force it off as a as a surprise on one community. Those might have been the old days. I think John Southers is term limited and there are a bunch of magnets who are trying to replace him. A problem well, for I think, uh, Go ahead. Isn't Wayne Williams running too? Okay. Wayne's a normal guy. Good luck Wayne's to Wayne. Wayne's a reasonable guy. Yes. Totally agree. And an attorney as well. I like attorneys. You brought up Katrina. Didn't that get you activated in your young life? Uh, man, you have a good memory. Um, yeah, I did spend some time in New Orleans helping work out how to rebuild that city and, and rebuild that school district after Katrina and was proud to pay a, play a small part in trying to rebuild that because it was a it was a you know terrifying and uh and novel opportunity of like what do you do when you've wiped an entire school district off the face of the earth and you have to start over um from scratch and that's uh, they did some really innovative things including uh you know really empowering local schools to control their own budgets and decide what they wanted to do to best serve their neighbors and so it meant some schools decided not to offer uh, bus service, but instead, you know, offered half the class size or decided to be able to offer two foreign languages, but not offer athletics. And you know, like, they really customized what they thought their communities needed. And it was very successful. It was the fastest improving school district in America for almost a decade. Last week, I had occasion to be in Denver Police Department headquarters meeting with Director Saldate, Director of Public Safety, and Chief of Police Ron Thomas. And I was talking about I had a client with me who was a victim of a gun crime, and we were talking about some gun control efforts. And I recall back in the early 80s, gosh, I'm really dating myself, but the Denver DA's office, DPD, and the Nuggets worked together on gun buyback programs. You'd get sneakers, you'd get Nuggets tickets, and a lot of people wanted to get rid of guns. And I bring it up now because I've always been for gun control, urban guy, Jewish urban guy, all the stereotypes. But Katrina kind of made me think because there was a breakdown in law and order and a lot of people were on their own in their homes. And I started thinking, you know, maybe it is a good idea to have a gun. And you just brought up the delayed response times in Denver so that a reasonable person could say, hey, I need a gun because I don't feel safe and I don't feel like law enforcement can't protect me. And I know you've thought a lot about guns. You were influential on the issue in the state legislature. So that's my long-winded way of saying, what about guns, uh, potential Mayor Mike Johnston? Yeah, um, glad you asked. I mean, I think you know this. I, I've I've been a gun owner my whole life since I was, I think, 12 or 13. My dad gave me my first gun. I own guns now, and uh, I respect that part of, obviously, our Colorado tradition. And I think it's totally reasonable for us to have common sense uh, laws that keep people safe uh, from guns. So that was that you know from unnecessary gun violence. That was why I fought to uh, to ban the high capacity magazines in the legislature after both um, the Aurora Theater shooting as well as Columbine. That's why I think universal background checks was a very reasonable stance uh, on um, on safety and things today like ghost guns that you know about, where guns are being three D printed that aren't traceable that are being used in crimes. 
those are seriously problematic. I think guns in the hands of, of prior felons, I think, is also a risk that we don't need to be taking. I think we know in situations where you have domestic violence at play, the ability for a male partner to get a hold of a gun uh, quickly is going to dramatically increase the risk of that female partner of death, still the highest killer of women or domestic partners with access to guns. So I think there are still reasonable common sense things we can do on gun safety to be able to keep the city safe and also protect people's first and their second amendment rights. Um, and one of those is, you know, is red flag laws and enforcing those with, uh, with real fairness and vigor, which I think we saw what happened in Colorado Springs when right. you don't do that. And so uh, I think we know gun crime is a real crisis across the city and it's a crisis for kids. We know more and more kids are getting access to guns and kids make impulsive decisions. You put a gun in the hand of an impulsive kid and you get, uh, you know, as my wife can tell you from when she was the chief of juvenile court for five years, you get some tragic outcomes. So like, we want to do everything we can to keep guns out of the hands of kids. And as soon as we know that kids have them, uh, we got to intervene quickly and get those kids help before they get into worse decision making. I think that Club Q killer used a ghost gun. And um, also... Uh, assault weapons are used so frequently. Denver has had an assault weapon ban for a long time. Would you continue to support that as mayor? Oh, yeah. I don't see any reason to change that. I think it can be as important and effective. I think, as you know, um, we really focused on the size of the magazine in addition to the style of the gun. Because, yes, you can carry an AR-15 with a 100-round magazine like the shooter did in Aurora, and that's very deadly. We also know you can carry a handgun uh, with a 30-round magazine like the shooters did at Columbine. Um, or um, and, and that can be incredibly deadly. Also, uh, some of the most recent shootings you saw also modified handguns. So it is really the magazine that is the biggest driver of shots per minute and potential fatalities per minute. But we know, yeah, those the AR-15s have been used in an uh, in incredible supermajority of mass shootings. And so that's one reasonable way to approach it. And I also think the focus on magazines is the most important. I had John Morris... He probably was your colleague, right? He came on my he was. podcast. He was my, he was my Senate president when I was first in the Senate. And he was sacrificed on this gun issue, but he remains adamant about it. And on my podcast, he called out Jared Polis. What are you doing, Governor? Why aren't you for an assault weapon ban? What do you think? Um, should Colorado have an assault weapon ban? Would, would you get involved in stuff like that now or when you're mayor? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I've supported it in the past. I certainly think it could be good policy going forward. Um, I, again, I, I think the highest priority issue has been on things like the high capacity magazines, whatever kind of gun you attach it to, have been universal background checks, have been red flag laws and strong enforcement of that. I think uh, waiting periods can be effective safety deterrents so you don't have people that are making impulsive decisions when they're, in, uh, when they're angry or, or uh, mentally unstable. I think those are things that we know can be important. And early intervention, you know, uh, in families where kids have access to guns, we know that matters a lot too. Uh, and looking at kids that get, you know, when you have a 13 or 14-year-old who's carrying a gun into a robbery, the risk of that kid at 16 or 17 or 18 using it to shoot someone is very, very high. So you also have to look at where your risk factors are. And once you see those, intervene quickly. I think too often we uh, let people go without any follow-up support or intervention. And then we're surprised. And three years later, that kid shows up having murdered someone. Gosh, now that you are sort of an older statesman, elder statesman, let me put it that way, you were around at the dawn of cannabis legalization. Am I right? And, <laughs> yes. And and how has that worked out for our community, Denver specifically, and how has it worked out for the children of Colorado? 
Yeah, you know, I had real concerns when it was initially passed, and I, I chaired the finance committee that oversaw all the regulations of the industry. And so I was worried about things like, will we see increased adolescent use? Will we see increased gateway drug effect to hard drugs? Will we see increased crime around these facilities? And the data has borne out that we have not seen serious increases in any of those three. I think that the industry has been well regulated. Uh, it's been occupied by thoughtful business people who have tried to, uh, who have been compliant and want, I think, to avoid dangerous outcomes for people as much as as we do. And so I think that it has um, been, by and large, a successful implementation thanks to careful regulation. Things like, you know, I supported, uh, you know, common dosages. So you don't have someone buying one brownie with five milligrams of THC and another one with 80 grams of THC, um, you know, easy to access labeling. I think those things have all been very positive. Um, I think, you know, there's some of the very high potency uh, products that are, there are some questions about uh, risk there or safety there. Uh, and I think that's, there's a process the legislature started to look on what kind of regulation might be needed in those places because you don't want kids exposed to very high potency. Um, but I think for the most part, the regulatory environment has been successful in making that rollout um, more safe than we might have worried. Do you know if uh, Denver police officers are prohibited from using cannabis in any form? Uh, I do not know that. And uh, well, what would be the policy of your administration if you had your druthers? Um, I mean, I, I think it would be the same as, you know, I think what they asked when we started this was regulate us like alcohol. I think that's been the mantra. I think that would be the same. I would not expect an officer to come to work drunk, um, and I would not expect an officer to come to work high. Um, I think if an officer uses cannabis on a Sunday afternoon in their home in the same way that they use um, Miller Lite on a Sunday afternoon in their home, I think that's a protected legal right in Colorado, but the expectation should always be you can't ever be on the job under the influence. Um I, I don't think that the usage of it itself should be a disqualifier anymore. What about the fact that it's a Schedule One controlled substance federally and still conceivably uh, a federal violation? You yeah, would say I mean, Colorado I, supersedes that in your mind? Well, I think that we're clearly on a trajectory where that will need to change federally. The federal government, as you know, is always five years behind everyone else. But when you have, you know, even states in the Deep South like Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi all legalizing the use of marijuana, either for medical or recreational purposes, I think more than, I don't know, 60% of the country now already has it legalized. And so I think that is a, that's a direction that has shifted in this country and people have, have changed their perception of it. And so I think it probably doesn't belong as a Schedule One drug anymore long term. Right. And if you just take your pool of police officers from people who have never used marijuana or haven't for 20 years, then are you really getting a representative sample of society? I don't know. But one of the great no, things. That's a fair question. Yeah, well, one of the great things about Denver has always been its park system. You grew up in Vail. You've got some pretty nice parks up there. But when did you start to appreciate the Denver park system? And has it occurred to you that if you are mayor, you will be in charge of that? Huh. It has occurred to me. It's one of the things that I love about the job because it is, again, every day, it's one of the things that has the biggest impact on my own life. Um, as a dad, you know, because whenever once or twice a week, we'll go over across the street in Central Park and we'll, in a day like this, you might go sledding on warmer days, you'll throw the football or you'll go to the playground or um, uh, you'll just play tag uh, or you'll just do cartwheels with your daughter. Um, and that access to open space, I think, is part of what makes Denver wonderful. And we want to preserve that access in all of Denver's neighborhoods and in places where we don't have it, we want to add it um, because that's the kind of thing that everyone wants to grow up next to. Uh, and I think that's the great balance of Denver is it's both an economically thriving and growing world-class city, 
And it's also a place that doesn't forget our roots, which we still are in the West. We still are in the mountains. We still are in a place where people want to be close to nature. And that should be true, not just when you drive up by 70. It should be true when you walk out your front door. I always thought it was cool that Denver owned some mountain parks. And what do you think about that? And how important is that to the vitality of the city? Yeah, I mean, I think that shows the way that Denver is so connected to the rest of the state and proud of the fact that it's the front door to the rest of the state and it's the hub for the rest of the spokes. And so it makes sense that we're helping get a lot of people out to the, uh, you know, to the great West where they want to go hike and bike or ski or um, camp. And so I think it makes sense that we have places where we directly have those partnerships and even own some of that property because uh, we care about both parts of the experience. So I like that as a way that it builds the relationship between the city and some of the other more rural parts of the state. All right. What about the golf courses? Do you play golf? Are they important to you? Because they're all important to me. <laughs> uh, I'm not a big golfer. I have golfed in the past, but I am uh, certainly bad at it. And it is not a, it's been a much harder hobby to maintain when you've had three kids to raise because it takes a long time to play golf <laughs> on a Saturday or Sunday. So I'm not, not an avid golfer, but I know that people in the city do love to you love to use it. Here was the key to my growing up. My parents would just drop me off at Kennedy or Welsher or City Park, Willis Case, Overland. Each had a dollar day where a junior could play. I think it was a buck and a quarter all you could play. Gosh, those were the days. Uh, anyway, I hope you maintain the golf idea. courses. Uh, it is a good idea. And the rec centers, I did get a little concerned when uh, – the rec centers got taken over during this immigration crunch. Um, what is the vitality and importance of these rec centers? They, they're they nice, but uh, are people of Denver really using them? Yeah, I think they are, and I think we have to make it easier for more people to use them. I'll tell you, my kids use them and love them whenever you need a place for a you know, pick up basketball game or to go swim in a pool or to even, you know, now to, be, to work out or exercise, especially in those cold winter months where it's harder to play outside. I think they play a crucial role. And I think the ability to keep those open access to Denver's kids is really important because we always want someplace positive for Denver kids to go. And I'd rather them be inside a gym playing basketball or swimming than outside in the street corner getting in trouble. And so I think that, those are critical components for us. We want to keep them well-maintained. We want to make them attractive, not just to kids, but to adults too. I'll tell you one that looked nice. The other day I went in the 20th Street gym. Hardly anybody was there. It had just been refurbished. There are some gems. And, uh, you know, I played a lot of basketball at Cook Park all over the city Anyway, there are so many interesting aspects to being Denver mayor. Have you thought about the perks of the job? Do you get a house? Do they still give you a free <laughs> membership at Denver Country Club? Uh, I, I do not. I don't know any of those parts. I'm focused right now on actually what we can get done in the job, particularly on how we're going to uh, end chronic homelessness in my first term and how we're going to add 25,000 units of affordable housing and how we're going to cut crime in half. Those are... Those are, for me, the big perks of the job. I haven't focused on the other ones. All right. Tell me how you're going to win. I've never seen a race quite like this. 25 candidates. You are among the better known. But what's the strategy? Yeah. I mean, you know, like all things, I think the strategy is um, out thinking, out working, and out executing, you know. And so we are going to, I think we'll come out with what I believe are the most thoughtful and responsive plans for how to solve the city's most significant problems, including you'll see detailed budgets from us for how much they cost and how we pay for them. So there's no 
letters to Santa Claus or magic fairy dust and how you plan to get something done. Um, I think the second is we will just, you know, we are doing massive grassroots outreach. We're doing three or four events a day in communities talking to neighbors, and we're going to be knocking on doors all over the city to have those conversations. Um, uh, and we'll be you know, communicating people with radio and TV and digital and uh, mail to help get people mobilized. I think it helps for me that I've built coalitions all over the city for so long. You know, I've helped build the coalition to pass universal preschool um, three years ago statewide. I helped build the coalition to repeal the Gallagher Amendment that was going to you know, kill hospital districts and fire districts. I built the coalition to pass this affordable housing and uh, and homelessness ballot measure statewide. I've, all the way back when I was working on gun safety, the immigration reform, you name it. I've had the chance to be shoulder to shoulder with so many different communities in Denver. I think I have really long existing relationships. I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. I represented, you know, historically African-American part of Northeast Denver for eight years in the Senate. And so I think I have deep relationships in all part of the city that put me in a really great position to be able to build the coalitions you need, not just to win, but actually to govern, because that's the most important part is what are the coalitions you need to actually get things done when you're in the job. How is this money matching experiment working out from your perspective? What is it? You raise $5 and they match it up to nine times. How does it work? That's right. So basically what it means is, you know, the maximum contribution anyone gives is 500 bucks, but it means that any, if any Denver donor gives 50 bucks, the city matches it nine to one to make it 500. Um, so for me, I love it because it means every, you know, in, in, in larger statewide campaigns, you're often for fundraising targeting whoever the people are, they can write thousand dollar checks and that's a small number of people, but there are a lot of folks, you know, teachers, servers, barbacks, you know, um, firefighters who can write $50 checks. Um, and that means their their support goes just as far as a CEO who can write a $500 check. And so it really has transformed it into just a very grassroots effort because every person in the city can be a voter. Every person can be a volunteer. Every person can be a donor. And it's really levels the playing field that I think is fantastic. Let me ask you about that book you wrote. It's well-received. It gets like four and a half, almost five stars on Amazon. I haven't read it, but... Uh Congratulations on writing it. What, what was the book about, and was it a rewarding experience to write a book like that? Uh, thank you. You're not alone, Craig. I think most of my family members haven't read it either, so don't feel bad about it. Well, there's um, still time. I, on Amazon, it said time. there's one book left. I don't know if that was you a come on. Right. Um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, so it's called In the Deep Hearts Core, and I wrote it uh, about my experience teaching in Mississippi. I went right out of college. I was teaching in uh, rural Mississippi Delta, uh, in one of the poorest districts in America. And it was an incredible experience. And it was about the relationships that I built with the students there and what I learned from them and what they taught me about what's possible still in American education and in, I think, American society at large. And so it really tells the stories of those kids and their families. And that's what I think tries to elevate, uh, some of their own experiences for the rest of the country to see and understand about what we can do better. Um, and while people would think of you know, Mississippi Delta is far, far away from Denver. A lot of the, a lot of the experiences are the same. A lot of them are not dissimilar to things I found when I had my office up in North Park Hill. You know, I was the only state senator that had a community office in the middle of one of my most underserved neighborhoods, and every day people would walk in and tell me what they were facing, what the challenges were, and we got to try to find a way to fix them together. And so, I love that part of the experience. It was deeply rewarding to to write, um, and even more rewarding to see people's response to it. But I just find, in, in general, I learned so much from talking to people and being able to sit down and hear their stories. And that for me is where you find the best ideas on how to make change. 
I like books. I like stories. There's a guy who went to Cherry Creek High School, Julian Rubenstein. In fact, his brother became uh, the DA in Mesa County, Dan Rubenstein, yep. about to prosecute Tina Peters. And Julian came to my attention when he wrote a book called The Holly. And it's about Park Hill. And one of the characters was Michael Johnston. I said, I know this guy. And since then, I've met Terrence Roberts. I've had him on my show. I've had Julian on as well. Today, we're recording this on February 3rd. I believe The Holly is in broad release. They've made a big movie out of it. It is quite the story, and I wonder if you are happy with the way you were portrayed in that book, or if you have a beef, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I've not seen the film. Um, obviously, you know, I lived through the entire experience, so I, I, I don't need to see it to know what happened. <laughs> um, it was incredibly difficult. It was a heartbreaking time for the neighborhood. We had worked hard for years to try to rebuild relationships in that neighborhood, um, and that was obviously a deeply fracturing incident. Uh, and we had to work for years after that, after Terrence was gone, to try to build the neighborhood back together. Um, and, you know, I've, I've gotten to see Terrence and we've caught up and I'm glad for him that he's doing well. And so um, and I'm, I'm very proud of what Park Hill and North Park Hill in particular has done uh, to grow in the years since that um, with a lot of partnerships from community members and uh, local leaders and, yes, community police and others. And so I think there's very good things happening in North Park Hill right now that are very different uh, than what the picture might have been 10 years ago. And for people who haven't seen The Holly or read the book, at the time you were coordinating things for Philip Anschutz and a project over there, and Terrence was part of an anti-gang movement. Uh, did I get the Anschutz part? Did you work for the Anschutz people? No, I did not have any involvement with the Anschutzes. Or, my bad. Uh, or I worked for them. No, it's okay. I was the state senator there, and I had my community office there. And oh, I brought okay. Terrence in. I brought Terrence in. I asked him to come join that office with me. So I brought him in as a nonprofit partner. His office was uh, co-located with mine after I, I brought him in. And so he was doing gang violence prevention work. I had my state senate office there. Terrence was really the one that had worked directly with the uh, Anschutz's on bringing a Boys and Girls Club there. We had been partners on the Boys and Girls Club, but I was not working with the um, Anschutz's on it. We did successfully bring the Boys and Girls Club there. We did successfully get um, a new school built there that's now the Center for African American Health, which is there on that site. There's a couple of new businesses that have sprouted up there, including a great restaurant called Mississippi Boy. Um, so uh, the neighborhood is really on the up and up, and it's exciting to see. Did you have occasion to read the book, though? I did read the book, yes. And do you think it was accurate about you, or do you think it was distorted? Oh, I don't, you know, I, I leave Julian and Terrence to have their own perceptions of, of what they think happened. And me, I, I feel like I worked my hardest to try to uh, serve that community in every way that I could and um, and had a long relationship with Terrence that has been honest and uh, I feel uh, good about. And I still see him now and we catch up on things. And so everyone has their own perceptions of, of what happened or didn't. But I certainly respect Julian and Terrence's right to tell their own version. What if it comes down to you and Terrence in the runoff? That would really be something. Do you have any mayoral uh, role models in Denver history? I've been around a lot of Denver mayors. Have you? Who who would you say um, you would turn to for advice? Oh, I think all you know. A lot of the mayors have done great things at different times. I think one of the you know, Federico Pena, I always think is a great model of someone who had a vision for how you could take the city from where it was to where you wanted to go. He really helped bring it into being a world-class city for the first time and built these really broad coalitions across the city of 
Latinos and African Americans and white folks of progressives and uh, business leaders and young people and you know older homeowners and how to build a picture for Denver that serves all of us. And so I, I get advice from all of them at different stages, but I think in many ways, probably the moment he faced when he took over the city is probably the most similar to the one we're facing now, which is there's a really choice between two directions of, of how do you allow the city to grow in a way that brings out the best in all of us and all the neighborhoods, or how do we let this become two separate Denvers, uh, one with real access to opportunity, one that's really suffering. And I think he found a really powerful way to mobilize and unite the city at a moment that it really needed it. You're dropping the names of uh, prior guests. Last week, I had John Fielder on, and uh, he recounted when he first came from North Carolina, and he saw the Rockies above Denver, and he just was blown away. He said, I want to live here someday. And Federico Pena, when he came to visit his brother, who was at DU Law School, he couldn't believe it when he saw the mountains. But I'm thinking about you, Michael Johnston, growing up in Vail. When you got down to Denver, you probably said, Ho-hum. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm looking up where I used to live. But does Denver inspire you the way it inspired people who came from the flatlands? Oh, it's inspired me since I was a kid. I mean, this was the big city you got to come to when you were coming to do school shopping or going to Casa Bonita for your birthday or going to see a Bruce Springsteen concert for your Christmas present. I mean, this was, this was the big city. Um, and for me, I've, I've loved it since I, you know, my dad used to bring me down to the uh, to work in the soup kitchen when I was a kid down in Golden Triangle. And so I've been coming to this city for as long as I can remember, both to, both to enjoy it and to serve it. And I've spent the last three decades serving it in different capacities, both as a school principal, as a state senator, then as a foundation head. And um, yeah, I love the city more every day and I'm more and more inspired by by what it can become. You know, it's, it doesn't need to be a shining city on a hill. It's a shining city right at the base of a big hill. Uh, but I think this can really be America's best city and can be the place where you can say, wow, that's the kind of city where you'd love to start a business where you know you'd love to go and get trained for a job where it's a great place to go out and eat and enjoy yourselves and where no one sleeps on the streets at night and where teachers and nurses can still afford to raise their kids in the city and where you can go downtown with your kids and sit out on the mall and have a beer and have your kids run around and play and you don't worry about if they're safe. Like That is possible. That's my dream for Denver. Uh, and that's what I think we can deliver over well, the next 10 years yeah. when we win this election. You really have been generous with your time. I love Denver, too. My favorite building in the world happens to be there, the Denver City and County Building. If you win, you'll be on the third floor. Have you seen that magnificent office? Of course you have. I used to roam the fourth floor back in the day, but do you love that building? And honestly, you know, with all the homelessness and there's not enough space, I'd like to see the next mayor put that building back to you. It breaks my heart to see it so empty all the time. Can you think about that? Yeah. It is one of the most beautiful buildings in the city, and it should be one of the most bustling buildings in the city. It should feel like a vibrant Denver from the inside as well as it does from the outside. And that's one of the things we want to bring back is the sense of urgency, excitement, energy in that building that the rest of the city is generating. I totally agree. Well, Michael Johnston, you are a major candidate for Denver mayor. Good luck to you. It takes a lot to engage in that kind of effort. Stay safe. Give my best to Courtney and your family. And uh, until next time, thanks again. Thanks so much, Craig. Thanks for having me. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye now. Talk soon.
Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I told you we'd have a great show. Isn't that Michael Johnston impressive? I didn't talk to him about his Ivy League education because... I'm not sure it's an asset when you're running for Denver mayor, but I'm impressed. He's a smart guy, and it's a tough field, but he's a major contender. Dave Gunders is always in contention for the best song of the year. He's a genius. Please tell everybody about his song, Black Balloons. Let's hope that Chinese spy balloon situation does not escalate or get dangerous. Let's find out. Until next week. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Five stars is wonderful. A great review, even better. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.